0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. good morning. Did you hear everyone quiet down right at about 9 o'clock? And almost, almost as if to signal to me, it's time to start. Let's go, Pastor. Uh, we have a good lesson in front of us. I love this book. <laughs> I, I think this is a, a wonderful book. I do the outline, and then my wife gets to hear me rant and rave about how good it is. Um, I hope you're enjoying it, too. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will progress through... Uh, Lesson 10, which is the last part of the chapter on um, the coming, the, the Israel of God in the coming kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do help us. <laughs> We're a little out of sync. That's funny. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, do help us in this Sunday school hour to focus our minds upon this rich teaching that is in front of us. Um, Lord, I I pray that Lord's Day after Lord's Day you would further refine us in the mind, also in the heart, and enable us to live in obedience to you, Lord, as citizens of your eternal kingdom. Uh, We so thank you for Christ. We love Him more and more as we grow in our understanding of Him, of His person, of His work and of this kingdom that He has inaugurated and one day will consummate. So Lord, do help us in our understanding, also in our living, that we would give honor to You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've taken a long time to go through this chapter in in our book, The Israel of God and the Coming Kingdom. Uh, This is the fourth part. And what O. Palmer Robertson has been doing in this uh, in this chapter is really asking the question, what role should we expect ethnic Israel to play in the, the kingdom moving forward from the time of Christ's first coming, moving forward to the consummation, and even into the new heavens and new earth. Uh, he defined terms, kingdom, Israel. That was very helpful. And then we've just been looking at The different parts of the New Testament, starting with uh, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Then we looked at the book of Acts. Then we looked very briefly at the writings of Paul, uh, just trying to identify um, the things that they said about Israel and, and the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And here in part four, we're turning our attention to John's writings. So that would include mainly the Gospel of John, and then there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I don't think we get into that uh, here at all. Uh, What's the other big book that John wrote? (coughs) The book of Revelation. and We went through the book of Revelation not too long ago. Uh, So some really interesting things stated here. Uh, He begins this portion of this chapter by talking about the thousand year reign of Christ, or the millennium uh, that is mentioned in Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10. Uh, Robertson simply remarks that a great deal of attention has been focused on references to the thousand year reign of Christ in the book of Revelation. If I could expo- expand upon that a little bit, a whole theological system really has been um, built upon this uh, one reference to a millennium. There is this theological system, uh, premillennialism. Uh, often associated with dispensationalism dispensationalism, but not always. But premillennialism teaches that there there will be a return of Christ, and then there will be a thousand-year period of time, or at least a very long period of time, where everything will be different, things will return some to, to some degree or another to focus upon ethnic Israel. Um, and then there will be the consummation, the, the final judgment in the new heavens and new earth. So premillennialism really looks, the, the premillennialist looks to the future and says, well, there's going to be really two more stages. There, there's going to be a millennium in the future, and then there's going to be the consummation. Whereas we as amillennialists, I hope I could use that word we, maybe you don't agree, but we as amillennialists, Look to the future, and and we see one more stage yet to come, the the consummation of all things, the new heavens and and new earth. Uh, To back up a little bit further, in other words, we see uh, the the kingdom of Christ uh, as having two stages to it. The kingdom inaugurated, which is the kingdom that we live in now, presently, and the kingdom consummated, whereas premillennialists, they have... A view that would see really three stages to the Kingdom of Christ. There is the stage that we are now experiencing, there is the future millennium, and then there is the consummation. There is kind of this three stage approach. And so, uh, Robertson wants to, to address that here. Um, so, he mentions very briefly Revelation 20 verses 1-10 through 10, and the millennial reign of Christ that is mentioned there. Uh, But then he backs off from that and says, but invariably this passage is considered in isolation from other writings that were very likely authored by uh, the Apostle John. It is as though it has been established that no connection exists between the thought patterns of the fourth Gospel and those of the book of Revelation. As a consequence, the broader theological framework that might help in understanding John's picture of a millennial kingdom has been largely ignored." So, what is Robertson doing here? He is saying, we do need to consider Revelation chapter 20. No text of Scripture can be ignored or dismissed. But it's a good principle of interpretation to not interpret these individual passages of Scripture, especially ones that might be a little bit difficult, uh, in isolation from the rest of the Scriptures, especially the the rest of what a, a given author has said. So, he's saying it would be wise for us to also back up and to ask, what does the Gospel of John reveal about the question of Israel and ethnic Israel's relation to the, to the future kingdom? Um, this is just a good principle of interpretation that Scripture text shouldn't be interpreted um, in, in isolation. So, if we have this theological system that's built upon one verse in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, this whole theological system, but yet this whole theological system runs counter or against the grain of everything else that is said in the New Testament. Perhaps what we should do is step back from Revelation chapter 20 and say, have we interpreted this passage wrong? Maybe there's another way for us to understand this text. And maybe not, but maybe there is. And, and, th- and that's the point, is that really this premillennial interpretation of Revelation chapter 20 does seem to um, cut against the grain of the rest of what is said in the New Testament and even in John's Gospel itself. So, first what Robertson does is look at ethnic Israel in the Gospel of John. He says, assuming that this connection exists, it may be helpful to first consider the role of Israel in the coming of the Kingdom as it is presented in the Gospel of John. Then with that background in mind, the role of Israel and the Millennial Kingdom of the book of Revelation can be examined. And I just say here, see highlights on page 150 through 153. That's a reference to my highlights. You may not have them. I don't know, maybe you do. I just didn't have space to outline all of this. And I wanted to run through this argument very quickly. I know that you're able to read this section for yourself. Perhaps you already have. but he notices that already in the prologue of John, I'm reading now from Robertson on, the page, on page 150, the stage is set for a general resistance from the people of Israel to the coming of the Messianic Kingdom. This great word that has become flesh came to His own things, the things that He Himself had made, and His own people did not receive Him. That is John 1.11. So already the stage is set for this idea that ethnic Israel is going to, in, the, in a large part, reject the Word of God incarnate. And indeed, we see that to be true in the rest of the Gospel of John and in the book of Acts 2. He notes how Jesus centered His ministry up in Galilee. We've been seeing that in the Gospel of Luke, haven't we? Away from Jerusalem, away from um, kind of these Jewish centers and, and off towards the Gentile nations. Uh, he also notes how when Nicodemus came to Jesus, Nicodemus being one of the leaders of, of the Jews... Uh, What Jesus said to him is that if you want to have anything to do with uh, this kingdom of mine, you must be born again. Uh, The stress here is being placed upon the fact that your descent from Abraham doesn't mean anything anymore. Your your natural birth doesn't mean anything as it pertains to this new covenant kingdom that Christ was inaugurating. Um, Instead, you need to be born again. There needs to be this spiritual renewal Uh, And again, I'm not going through any of this in detail, but just drawing your attention to the arguments that are made here. Uh, This warmth of reception, later on he says, by Samaritans and Galileans is is to be contrasted sharply with the rejection of the Judean Jews at Jesus' visit to Jerusalem. A little bit later, we see that the Jews keep seeking to kill Jesus, um, but yet some did believe in Him as a prophet from God and even the Christ. Uh, Many Jews did put their faith in Him, but many tried to stone Him and kill Him. Um, Again, many Jews believed in Him. I'm just noticing highlights here. So there is this truth that some of the Jewish people did believe that He was the Messiah, but many did not. And and especially from amongst the religious elite, uh, there was this hostility to Christ. There was a lot of anger directed at Him, especially when He started to talk about The fact that being a physical descendant of Abraham didn't mean anything in this new covenant. And in fact, God was able to rise up children from Abraham from even the stones. It doesn't matter. What matters is faith in the Messiah. That's what makes one a true child of Abraham. And that infuriated the Jews. So you see this theme really permeate John's Gospel. Let me read a concluding remark. Uh, no wait, not quite yet. A concluding remark, is it? On page one fifty two uh, here Robertson says it's an extended quotation at least. Despite all the miraculous signs that Jesus did, the Judean Jews still would not believe in him, john twelve thirty seven. Yet a number even from amongst their leadership did believe, but they would not confess their faith publicly, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God, that is john twelve forty two through forty three. In the end, the Jews handed Jesus over to the Roman governor. And insisted that He be crucified. For this reason Jesus judged them as having the greater sin, sin even greater than Pilate." And so, in this way John in his Gospel paints a vivid picture of the role of the Jews in the coming of the Messianic Kingdom. The first disciples came from among the Jews. Many Jews believed in Him, though with various levels of commitment, but in the end it was the Jews that turned Jesus over to Pilate and insisted that He be crucified. And in anticipation of this rejection, Jesus rejoiced when Gentiles came seeking Him, for His mission had embraced all the nations of the world." And I I think you can see what the argument is here. It's a very clear argument. Um, The direction of things is going away from kind of an ethnocentric focus upon the Jewish people and towards the inclusion of all nations. That's the direction of things in the whole of Scripture, starting with Genesis three 3.15. And we really see that development in all of the Gospels, and it's present powerfully in, in John's Gospel too. Things are moving away from being centered upon ethnic Israel, and Jesus has come as the Savior of the world. Uh, the Messiah, even for the nations, not for the Jews only, but for the Gentiles too. And and so, Robertson wants us to see that when we are going to the book of Revelation, we should keep all of this in mind. Now, it may be that Revelation 20 verses 1-10 through does teach that there's a literal future millennial reign of Christ that is to come, and if that is what it teaches, then it is the Word of God and we must believe it. Uh, But what Robertson does in the rest of this chapter is to show that it's not a good interpretation of this text. In fact, there's a better interpretation to be had. So, let's move into the book of Revelation now, John's, um, uh, John's book, the book of Revelation. And First, there's a little remark about interpreting the book of Revelation properly. Uh, Robertson says that many Christians assume the book of Revelation focuses on the future arrival of the consummate kingdom. However... The overall structure of the book is best understood as organized around seven cycles that move from tribulation to praise, from tribulation to praise, from tribulation to praise. And here he's quoting Hendrickson, an author named Hendrickson. The time of tribulation is the present epoch of the messianic kingdom, while the period of praise anticipates the consummate kingdom that is to come. The book cannot be understood as moving directly in chronological order from the time of the apostolic church to the final consummation of all things for midway through it the birth of Christ and His attempted murder by the satanically controlled powers of the state are described. So first of all Robertson wants us to see that the book of Revelation is not organized chronologically. That's a huge observation to make and it it should be clear as day. Does this sound familiar to you all? If you've been at Emmaus for a while you've heard me teach this in a In a class on eschatology, you've heard this preached uh, as we went through the book of Revelation. This is a major and fundamental error that so many interpreters of the Bible make today. They assume that there's a kind of chronological organization to the book of Revelation so that what is described in one chapter precedes what is going to happen in history as it is described in the next chapter, so on and so forth. No, there's, there's cycles. There's seven cycles. There's this constant return back to uh, things that happened earlier. And this progress through the history of redemption is then made, bringing us to the consummation kind of over and over and over again. It's a little more complex than that. Uh, but it's a very important observation to make. Maybe you can see why it's an op- important observation to make when we are eventually going to come to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 is near to the very end of the book of Revelation, but it does not mean that what is described there will happen at the end of time, you see. Uh, Instead, it describes what is even now. Robertson then turns his attention to the question of ethnic Israel in uh, the book of Revelation. What is the distinctive role of Israel in this movement from the present state of the Messiah's kingdom in which its membership is persecuted even to the point of martyrdom, to the consummate state of the kingdom in which Christ and His people dwell safely in the perfect harmony of the new heavens and earth." So, when we look at these cycles, the seven cycles of the book of Revelation, what role does ethnic Israel play? And he mentions that there are two references to Jews in Revelation. Uh, Listen to them. Revelation 2.9, both of these are in those letters to the churches. Uh, the, to the seven churches. Revelation two nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So what do you notice about this? A distinction is made between those who are truly Jews and those who are not truly Jews. What do you think the meaning of this is? Obviously, he's not talking ethnically for all who have descended from Abraham and are truly Jews, ethnically speaking. Uh, What what is being said here? Well, true Jews are the ones who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. So, there are some who claim to be Jews, but they are not. And then the language is very strong. Instead, they are called a synagogue of Satan. Uh, Why would they be called by that name? Anyone? Think in terms of kingdom. Why would they be called by that name? If Christ is not their king, then Satan is. There are two kingdoms present in the world. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of light. There is the kingdom of God and Christ and there is the kingdom of the evil one. To not be in the one is to be in the other. To not have Christ as king is to have the evil one as king. So, these Jews who say they are Jews but are not truly Jews because they have rejected their Messiah, which kingdom do they belong to? Well, they are in the kingdom of the world. The common kingdom of, kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the evil one. We have to notice that in Revelation 2.9. Being an ethnic Jew in the book of Revelation doesn't matter. What matters is faith in the Messiah and then there is another another reference to, to Jews in Re- Revelation 3, 9. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come, down, come bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Uh, these are hard sayings, aren't they? And you can uh, just hear the critics saying, you're anti-Semitic. Uh, nonsense. Uh, this is... Scripture, this is the way that the Scriptures teach. Paul's desire was that all the Jews would be saved. He wished that he could be accursed in order for it to happen. Our desire for, should be to see Jews come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, certainly. This does not make one anti-anything, uh, but it is uh, the language of, of covenant and kingdom being applied to this question here in the book of Revelation. These passages in Revelation echo the way that John in his Gospel reports that Jesus addressed the unbelieving Jews of his day saying you are of your father the devil and the works of your father you will do that is a reference to John 8:44 so those Jews that rejected him Jesus and his earthly ministry said you are of your father not Abraham but of your father the devil there are two references to Israel in revelation uh, besides revelation 2:14 which refers to old covenant Israel uh, one is found in Revelation 7:4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. How are we to interpret that number, 144? Did I say 144,000? No, no. I said 144. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. Anyway, <laughs> you saw them. There are 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. How do you think we are to interpret this number and the reference to Israel in Revelation 7:4? Anyone? Are the Jehovah's Witnesses right? It's not a literal number. Everything in this book is symbolic. Maybe that's an overstatement a little bit. This is a symbolic book, isn't it? Uh, in fact, we're told that it's going to be a book of symbols in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. It's a book filled with symbolism throughout these numbers. The seven churches that are addressed in the opening of the book of Revelation, they, these were real seven churches that were written to, yes, but they stand for all the churches. Christ is found in the midst of the lampstand you know, with these 12 lights shining. It's Christ in the midst of His churches. Uh, numbers are very symbolic in the book of Revelation. And I think that is true of the number 144,000. What is the symbolism of the number 144,000? I think my interpretation of this would be that it's 12 times 12 times 1,000. Did I get that math right, Danny? Our treasurer should know. Twelve times twelve t- times a thousand, the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of Christ times a thousand years, maybe a reference to this millennium that we'll eventually come to talk about in Revelation chapter 20. I, I don't know, but it seems to stand for just all of God's elect. And here they are referred to as um here they are referred to as belonging to every tribe of the sons of Israel. What have we learned about the language of Israel as it is used in the New Testament? It can refer to ethnic Israel, but oftentimes it refers to the Israel of God, the Israel of faith, even the New Covenant people of God. And last time we were together, I believe, we looked at Jeremiah 31:31, which even in the Old Covenant helped us to anticipate the coming of a New Covenant that would be made with Israel and Judah, uh, but one that is pure. I think you're able to track along with all of this. Um, I say see interpretation of 144,000 on pages 155-157. through 157. You could read that on your own time. And then the second reference to Israel in the book of Revelation comes in Revelation 21-12. There we read, it had a great high wall with twelve gates and the twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. This is referring to the, to the New Jerusalem and the wall that surrounds it. I don't even know that we're to take this literally, that there's going to be a wall. (laughs) But there's something here about the the New Jerusalem. Um, There's going to be many gates. The people of God are going to enter into the the New Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth to give God praise. The glory of God will fill that place and and the the gates will have the names of of the twelve tribes of Israel inscribed over them. So, the true Israel of God will enter in uh, through through these gates. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, picture. See the interpretation of the names of the twelve tribes on page 157, if you wish. We just don't have time to get into all of it in our class. So, Robertson says on page 157, at the bottom, that the paucity, or we might say scarcity, of references to the Jews and Israel in the book of Revelation has some significance for analyzing the relation of Israel to the coming of the kingdom. Certainly, the Jews who acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah will have a part in His kingdom, but particularly with reference to the consummate state of the kingdom, the book of Revelation focuses its attention not on a distinctively Jewish domain, but on the fact that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. See Revelation 11.15. The Messiah's name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 1916. In this all-inclusive consummate kingdom, He will reign forever and ever. The point is that if we study carefully the Gospel of John, and if we study carefully the book of Revelation in their entirety, again the direction is not towards a focus again upon a particular ethnic people, but rather the focus is upon the Kingdom of Christ expanding to all nations until Christ returns to make all things new. Now we come to Revelation 20 uh, verses 1-10. through I wanted to read this text to you in its entirety so you can be very clear about what we're talking about. We're almost to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Notice, if you have it open before you, that the end of chapter 19... Seems to describe the very end. I don't know if you can see this just upon, glance, just just at, upon a glance at this text. It's here that a rider on a white horse is described as coming. Uh, verse. I'm just picking out some verses here. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down all, strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What does that sound like to you? Final judgment. Um, Verses 17 uh, through to the end of chapter 19 uh, seem to describe uh, the end. What should I read here? Well... The beast is captured, with it the false prophet. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What does that sound like to you? Final judgment. In fact, it sounds like things that will be described again in Revelation chapters 20. Um, let me see, and following, but just in different ways. So it seems like Revelation 19 brings us to the end. And if you understand that the book of Revelation is not written chronologically, this will not trouble you. You'll get it. That this is a part of the cyclical nature of the book of, of Revelation, that we're taken from the beginning of Christ's reign to the end, back to the beginning and to the end, back to the beginning and to the end, over and over again in different ways, with, with a different emphasis on different themes throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 seems to take us to the very end, and then we should not be surprised that Revelation chapter 20 takes us back again to the beginning of Christ's kingdom, historically speaking. It says, It says, And holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So the premillennial interpretation is that this describes something future to us. There will be some kind of return of Christ, and then there will be this thousand year period of time where these things that are described here in these verses take place. I said I was going to read through verse 10, didn't I? Let me do that. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever." So again, we seem to come to the end in, in Revelation chapter 20 uh, verses 7 uh, through 10. We come to that, that final judgment. You, you'll see that the great white throne judgment is then described in verse 11 and following So again, the premillennial interpretation sees verses one through seven as describing something future. We would say, no, this perfectly describes our current experience, Uh, but but from a heavenly or spiritual uh, perspective. In fact, uh, that premillennial system really creates some very odd problems. Have you ever noticed that? we're going, evidently, according to that perspective, we're going to have this thousand year period of time in the future where you have uh, people who are resurrected, coexisting with those who are not, they're just ordinary people. (laughs) It's strange, and and Christ is going to rule and reign on earth for a thousand years in a way that He does not now uh, bodily. There's going to be a return to a focus on old covenant things, and then at the end of that time, there's going to be this great rebellion, almost a second fall. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm making the point that, okay, if that's what Revelation 20, verses 1-7 through 7, teaches, we must believe it. But that idea is found nowhere else in the Scriptures. Nowhere else. And it runs counter to what the Scriptures are saying, even John's own writings, the Gospel of John and the rest of the book of, of Revelation. So, maybe there's a better way to understand what is being said here in Revelation 20, and I think there is, Revelation 20, 1-7 describes our current experience. And I'll give you a very rapid overview of, of the interpretation that Robertson gives, and it's the one that I take. The whole of the evidence of the New Testament surveyed so far points to two phases rather than three phases of the coming kingdom. We've kind of already talked about that. There is the kingdom inaugurated, and then there is the kingdom consummated. There is no room for a third phase. What would you call it? The kingdom inaugurated, the kingdom consummated. This concept does not exist within the New Testament, that there is some third, middle phase between the two. Point two that Robertson makes. The symbolic use of numbers throughout the book of Revelation suggests that the number 1,000 is also symbolic in significance. This book is filled with symbolism. We've already talked about the number 144,000. Uh, we could have talked about the number 12 and the number 24 and the num- and the number 7 these numbers all have symbolism attached to them uh, what do you think the number 1000 is symbolic of there is another text that says to the lord a thousand years is as one day and one day as a thousand years so what would the the reference to one day refer to okay I wasn't thinking of any of those answers that you just gave. I'm thinking that the point is that a very short period of time to us seems to the Lord like a very long period of time. And a very long period of time to the Lord seems to us like a very short... I don't know if I said that well. The point is that God is eternal. He's not bound by time. And so, you know... I think a thousand years, the the number thousand here, refers to a very long period of time and a complete period of time. That's what a thousand years refers to. It's not to be taken literally. It's, It's symbolic of a very long period of time and yet a complete and full period of time. The Binding of Satan, point three... In a way that keeps him from deceiving the nations, see Revelation 20, verses 2 through 3, serves well as a description of the present age in which the gospel is being spread to all the peoples of the world. I've talked about this quite a bit. Uh, the premillennialists will say, but Revelation 20 says that Satan will be bound. He's not bound now. In fact, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're to be aware of our adversary and his activities and his schemes. Satan is not bound now, so therefore this passage cannot be describing our current state. This passage cannot be describing uh, the time between Christ's first and second comings, the the time in which we now live, because Satan is not bound. Um, What would you say in response to that if, if you hold to the same view that I hold to and wanted to defend it? Read the text. The text is is using symbolic language. By the way, here's a really great, great question to ask. Can Satan, a spiritual being, be bound by a chain? Is it possible to put a chain around the ankle of Satan? No. It's symbolic language. Can he be sealed within a pit, you know, as if a prisoner in in the deepest dungeon would be sealed in a pit? Well, well, no. There is the pit of hell. There is the pit of Sheol or Hades. And I do agree that there is a sense in which he is bound there. Don't, Don't get me wrong, but that's a spiritual place. So, there's no lid on that pit. And there's no chain around the ankle of Satan, because he doesn't have an ankle. He's a spiritual being. It's symbolic language. But here in the text, and this is the important thing to, to really notice, the binding is, is a specific kind of binding. It does not say that He is bound so as to not be an adversary to God's people. It's that it says that He is bound so as to not what? Deceive the nations any longer. And when we realize that prior to Christ's first coming and the accomplishment of our redemption, the nations were in darkness and bound in darkness, what is being taught here is that that binding that, that, that power that Satan had over the nations, it's been broken. Go there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Do you hear Christ our King? Do you hear what He's saying? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Who did that authority belong to prior to Christ's resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand? Satan. He's the ruler of this world. So this fits. This fits with what the rest of the Scriptures say about Satan's power over the nations ever since man's fallen to sin. The nations being bound in darkness and kept under the power of the evil one. This fits with the mission of Christ as our second Adam. I mean, we can go on and on and on. This fits with the storyline of Scripture. The premillennial system does not fit with the storyline of Scripture whatsoever whatsoever. So Satan is bound now, specifically, so that he cannot keep the nations in darkness anymore. So that the great commission that has been given to us can be accomplished. And and we can go forward with that confidence. And what has happened? What has happened? Well, we are here worshipping Christ, the King, 2,000 years almost after Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand on the other side of the world from where Christ died and rose again the gospel of the kingdom has gone to the nations with success because of this victory that has been won by Christ number 4 the reference to the souls of those who have been martyred who have not worshiped the beast in revelation 20 verse 4 and who now are seated on thrones well describes the state of christians who have died during this present era this isn't the first time we've seen a vision of this in the book of Revelation. I don't have chapter and verse for you right now, but other visions were shown to John where he was given a glimpse into, into heaven. And he saw the souls of those who had been martyred there crying out from underneath the altar saying, How long, O Lord, until You come and avenge our, our blood? And another glimpse is given to that. So, Satan is bound So as to not deceive the nations any longer, the gospel of the kingdom is going to the ends of the earth with success. The elect from all peoples are being brought in. And those who die in the Lord, uh, those who are martyred and those who die naturally, where do their souls go? Into the very presence of God in heaven. Because the curtain has been torn in two and the way has been opened up. No longer do the souls of the faithful uh, go to Abraham's bosom that upper compartment of Sheol, as they did under the Old Covenant. But the veil of the temple has been torn in two. The way into the heavenly Holy of Holies has been opened up. The souls of those who have died in the Lord are in the very presence of God. And that is what John sees and reports to us here in Revelation chapter 20. It's, this isn't the consummate state. This certainly isn't some millennial state. He sees the souls of those who have died. The souls. They are not yet reunited to their bodies, which will happen on the last day at the resurrection. He sees the souls and they are with God in heaven. The first resurrection referred to here in in Revelation 20 verses 4-6 through associated with the millennium is best understood as referring either to the renewal of life that occurs at conversion or the transfer of the believer's soul from earth to heaven at death. The first resurrection, he says, is either. I don't, he doesn't take a position. There, aren't two, there are two interpretations of this. Either it's referring to regeneration or the souls going to the presence of God in heaven. If there is a first resurrection, that implies there will be a second resurrection. What would the second resurrection be? The resurrection of yes, or the resurrection of all people on, on the last day, the bodily resurrection And for those not in Christ unto judgment, for those in Christ unto glory. So the first resurrection is spiritual. We go into the presence of God spiritually in our souls. The second resurrection is is bodily and it will happen on the last day. So the first resurrection of Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 associated with the millennium is best understood as referring to either the renewal of life that occurs at conversion, uh, regeneration or to the transfer of the believer's soul from earth to heaven at death. Point six, the idea of a middle phase in the coming of the kingdom during which for a thousand years Christ physically subdues His enemies from an earthly throne located in Jerusalem would be sadly anticlimactic in the experience of the Christian. I think that's a great point. Peter says that our hope is in the new heavens and new earth. What are you hoping for? Uh, brothers and sisters, in the future, as it pertains to Christ's kingdom, what are you hoping for? Well, uh, your answer should be that on the day that I die, if I die before Christ returns, my soul will go immediately into the blessed presence of God. But as it pertains to the future of Christ's kingdom, what are you hoping for? Some purgatory-like thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, where there's going to be Some strange mixture of regenerated persons intermingling with natural persons who are still subject to death. And then a great and final rebellion at the very end of that. Armageddon. We might I I don't know where Armageddon fits in all of these themes. I've forgotten, but there's an Armageddon somewhere. Um, Is that your hope? No, your hope is the new heavens and new earth, the consummation. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We do not mean, Lord Jesus, come quickly to establish this millennium. We ought to mean, Lord Jesus come quickly to bring everything to a conclusion, to its consummation, new heavens and new earth. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in a new heavens and new earth. Point seven. Look at that. He has seven points for Revelation 20, verse 1-2-3. Th- that's good. For all these reasons, the reference in Revelation 20 to a thousand year reign of Christ is best understood as a description of the current period of gospel proclamation it's a very long period of time. It will be a perfectly complete period of time. The Lord will return when? When will He return, by the way? I mean We do not know, don't get me wrong. When will the Lord return? It, it will be the day of judgment. It will be the day of glory for His people. What, what's kind of the, the metric that needs to be met? And it's a mystery to us. We don't know what it is, but when will the Lord return? I think that's right. Yeah. When all, the, when all of God's elect are gathered in, that's when the Lord will return. What is that number? Who are they? When will it happen? No clue. Stop guessing. The Scriptures say, stop guessing. Don't worry about it. Be faithful today. This time between Christ's comings, the first and second coming, will be marked by wars and rumors of wars and, and trials and tribulations and famines and natural disasters That's how it is in this period of time where the kingdom has been inaugurated but not yet consummated. Um, But Christ will return at just the right time. Let me continue reading this quote. I I distracted myself. In this era, the souls of those who have died, while remaining faithful to Christ, reign along with Him in His heavenly throne at the same time Satan is restrained so that the good news of salvation could spread throughout all the nations of the world that's what revelation 20 verses 1 through 10 or 1 through 7 describes to us and we should not be surprised to find this description of this present time at the very end of the book of revelation given the cyclical nature of the book of revelation it's not chronological By way of conclusion, in conclusion, the point that is particularly relevant to the present discussion may be noted once more. There is little in this passage that suggests a distinctive role for Israel in this final phase of the coming of the Messianic Kingdom. The only possible suggestion of a distinctively Israelite role is the reference to the beloved city, which presumably is Jerusalem, Revelation 20 verse 9. But this phrase explains the immediate the immediately prior reference to the camp of the saints, which indicates rather clearly that the reference is not to the literal city of Jerusalem. Whatever may be one's view of the specifics of this chapter, it would be difficult to establish that the Jews are described as having a distinctive role to play. This absence of a distinctive role for Israel in the coming of the consummate kingdom of the Messiah characterizes the whole book of, the Re- of Revelation. Nowhere in this book are the Jewish people described as having a distinctive part in the kingdom. And I should add, by virtue of their ethnicity, right? Indeed, there will be Jews of faith who do have a distinctive part in this kingdom. For this reason, Romans 11 once again assumes critical importance. If Israel is to be understood as having a distinctive role in the coming of the Messianic Kingdom beyond the role it currently plays, that point will have to be established from Romans 11. It is that section of Scripture that must be considered next. And so there is very important passage there in Romans 11, and we will go to it in the next chapter. Um, This is good. Is it not good? It's good. We don't have time for questions. Um, You guys know this is true about me. I've said it before. I went from really not liking the book of Revelation. That sounds bad to say. I went from really not liking the book of Revelation to loving the book of Revelation. It is a book filled with meaning for the people of God today, today. So much can be gleaned from that book for us today because it describes largely our current experience. There are passages that speak of the time of the end. We do go to the end over and over again in the book of Revelation. That's true. But so much of that glorious book helps us to understand what we ought to expect now today. Satan is active. There is a beast. There is a false prophet. There is a harlot. And these symbolize the things through which the dragon himself works. And they are all about us today. They are all around us today. And so we need to understand this book and learn to live according to wisdom in this present evil age. I could go on and on about the book of Revelation. I do love it so much. Let's, um, let's close though in prayer. Father... Again, I pray that you give us understanding, not so that we might be filled with knowledge only, certainly, not so that we might be puffed up with pride, but so that we might live well as citizens in your inaugurated kingdom. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Bring all things to their consummate end. Our hope is in the new heavens and new earth, and we long to be there. We long to see You our Savior and to be transferred into that eternal state where we will behold the glory of God forever and ever and worship His most holy name. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.